Heavenly Father, you are the giver of all things. Lord, other than your work amongst us, uh, our time together would be a complete and utter waste of time. So Lord, we, we pray that you would be pleased to work in and through your people this morning to give us with, and fill us with a sense of awe and wonder of who you are and what you have done. But Lord, we pray too that you would also challenge us to live wholeheartedly for you, to have hearts that are so captivated and if the love for you that it motivates our thoughts, our actions, our words, and the way we think about one another, the way we think about uh, even those in our surroundings who don't yet know you. So work through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are coming to the end of 2019. It's when dads make all their annual jokes of, oh, I won't see you till next year. Or then this people say, oh, I won't see you till next decade. Although just to put a damper on that, technically the decade doesn't begin till the year after that. Or then there's one who thinks they're really funny. Just before midnight, lift up your left leg. So you start the new year on the right foot. But it's a time when people make resolutions as well. A kind of a, what I hope to achieve, what I hope to gain in 2020. But I find them actually a little bit sad. Not not just sad because all the ones to go to the gym all the time and lose weight, they never happen. But sad because even in Christian circles, the majority of them are very self-oriented, aren't they? It's about what I want for me. What would make me more happy? Whether it's working our way up the ladder at work, going on a great holiday, losing weight, stopping a particular bad habit, all of which might be good things, It's kind of a bit like a magic genie sort of thing, isn't it? If I could have one wish, what would it be? Because whatever you wish for most is a sign of what you value most. And you can't have multiple mosts. There will always be one thing which you want most, which you value most. And whether you like it or not, that one thing, everything else will bow its knee to that. Everything else will give way to whatever you value most, whatever you want most. Or to put it in the words of Jesus, you can't serve two masters. You will love one and you'll hate the other. Now, so Christian, that sort of challenges as we think about these types of things. What do my greatest desires reveal about me? What do they say at this present time seems to matter most to me. And I think that self-examination is probably something that for most of us doesn't sit too comfortably. Maybe it even gets us frustrated. It's like, yeah, this is where it's at, but I don't want to be like that. I hope today as we look at the example of John the Baptist, not only will it challenge us, but it'll shape us and think, yeah, I want a heart like that. We're going to look at the setting because the opening verse is after this so it's kind of helpful to know after what. What we see is our purpose in life 
from the example of John, that is, and that it's only the truth that will set us free. So if the first words are after this, clearly what we're reading here belongs to something that's happened beforehand. And conveniently, John chapter 3 is a very, very familiar chapter, isn't it? You've got the first eight verses, you've got the interactions between Jesus and a religious leader, Nicodemus. And Jesus says to him, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And even for this guy who's a great teacher, has no idea what Jesus is talking about. Jesus has to repeat it again, different words. Unless you are born of the Spirit or born from above, unless God does something in you, you will not enter the kingdom. Then there's the highly familiar verses 14 to 16, which sadly, verse 16 often gets left out on its own, doesn't it? We all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But you've got the example in verse 14 and 15, where it says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, read about in Numbers, now a time when they had all been bitten by these poisonous snakes, and they were destined for death. And God says, put up a bronze serpent, lay it. whoever looks upon that and places their trust in that, they will not die, they will escape death. So when verse 16 says, God so loved the world means in this way. So without verses 14, 15, you don't have the example of in what way God loved the world. He loved the world by providing the saviour that if you look upon and trust in, you are saved from the natural course of death that you were headed towards. But it's verses 17 and 18 that probably have the closest ties to some of the content in our passage we're looking at. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So there's our setting. The king has come. It says you must be born again of the Spirit if you want to enter into that kingdom. Jesus is very clear that he is the only means by which we can escape condemnation, escape judgment, escape his wrath. And it's only by refusing the means that God has provided that we, that we remain condemned. And that's kind of hard to comprehend, isn't it? That people hear about what God has done to save us and so many think, nah, don't need it. I don't want to believe it. I don't want to place my trust in that. Now those who do are guaranteed eternal life. They're adopted into his family as his children. But it should change us too, shouldn't it? If before we came to trust in Christ, we thought, it's all about me. It's about what I want to do. I call the shots. I am the master of my own fate. But when we come to realise that he is our creator, he is the rightful ruler of all, he is the good loving God who gives us everything, he is worthy of all honour and praise. If our previous mindset of it's all about me dishonours God, and that's the type of sin that led Jesus to die on a cross, if we place our trust in him, 
Our whole worldview should be different, shouldn't it? Now, I love John the Baptist. I don't think anyone's going to claim that he's one of these sort of showy Christians that he puts on a big spectacle or he's an attention seeker in any sense of the way. Grows up in the wilderness eating locusts, wild honey, dressed in camel hair. Now, you might think, oh, yeah, that might be pretty cool in the hipster sort of sense these days. Sure, he had a public ministry, but it's hardly a popular message, isn't it? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Yet despite his no-frills approach, he was part of God's plan. And because God had given him that ministry, and because that was part of God's plan, lots of people went out. They went out of the way, they went out to hear, to listen, to be baptised by John. Now in our passage that we're looking at, we see that Jesus and the disciples go out and they also begin to baptise. Although you'll see in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 2, Jesus himself didn't baptise, it was his followers who were doing the baptising. But we've got to note about when this is happening. It might seem a little bit unnecessary to say John wasn't in prison yet, but it's a significant time marker. When you read over in Mark's Gospel, it says, after John was arrested... That's when Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So John is giving us this note to say that this, what we're describing here is just before the main beginnings of Jesus' public ministry. Now somewhere along the way, John's disciples are engaging in something by way of a debate or an argument with some of the Jewish believers regarding ritual purification we don't know the nature of the conversation or what specifically was exchanged maybe they're saying to the jewish people hey we're involved in this thing that john's doing with this baptism this cleansing is far superior than what you everyday jews are doing we don't know maybe they're saying something like that but whatever they're saying it would appear that in response the jews have said you think that's kind of so special you're involved in Jesus is doing that too. In fact, lots of people are going out and he and his, and his followers are baptising. Whatever happened in that exchange, it certainly got the attention of John's disciples. I think they were a bit jealous. I think they were kind of stirred up. They thought, this is not right. So they go back to John and they say to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptising and all are going to him. Don't you love it when you kind of emotionally really write into stuff, you kind of exaggerate. Everyone's going to him, despite the fact that John and the disciples are still carrying out baptisms. It's like, you know that guy you spoke so highly of? You know, you lifted him up. You said great things about him. And now he's being so disrespectful, he's encringing on your territory. He's doing this whole baptism stuff. It's like they've got concerns both for John and his fame and his ministry, but there's probably part of them that thinks, man, if this keeps going on like this, we're, we're going to have to shut up shop. This is going to come to an end. Now, this sort of thing happens in ministry all the time. A church or a ministry is, is flourishing and everyone's all excited and it's great. 
And then either another church starts or another ministry starts or, or maybe another church or a ministry doesn't start and that ministry or that church somehow just seems to decline without any particular reason. How do you respond? Do you get angry with God? It's like, why? Why are they doing so well? We're doing the right thing. We're being faithful. What's going wrong here? If it's the example of another church, you go knocking on their doors and say, don't you steal our people. They belong to me. Do you give them a Greta Thunberg, how dare you speech? I love John's response. That's one I think we could all learn well from. John answered, a person cannot even receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I have said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John's pretty clear about a couple of things. He knows who God is. He knows what God does. And he knows who he is. He's like that. No one can do anything unless God gives it to him. This thing that we're doing, God has given that to us. That's why it has been flourishing. And if something else comes up, you want to know why? It's because God has given them that. He's the giver of all good gifts. If it's something is flourishing in a spiritual sense towards God, God's given it. It's not the personalities involved, it's, it's the God who is active. I mean, why are people going to John in the first place? Is it because he put on such a flashy show? He was such a cool guy that everyone's like attracted to, to him? He had a morning TV show that you could watch his sermons week after week? There's nothing impressive about John because God has given him that ministry. It's a little bit like what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.7. What have you got that you weren't given? And why do you brag as though you weren't given it, as though this was your achievement? Ministry isn't a competition about who's the most successful because you want to know what? It's never your success in the first place if something does appear to be going successful in the eyes of the world. John certainly knew who he was. He says, I'm not the Christ. I told you that. My job was to go before him to point people to him. That's it. So if people start going to him, that is a good thing. I don't care if I never baptise someone ever again. My role was to point people to Jesus. If they're going there, that is good. That's the same for anyone in ministry. And incidentally, by when I say in ministry, I don't mean Samuel and Steve and Ray. We're all ministers. And our role is to point people to Christ. Not to ourselves. If people are being pointed to Jesus, if people are growing in Christ, who cares who God is choosing to do that through? Doesn't mean, doesn't mean that God doesn't love you if he's doing it through someone else that you think is not as qualified as you. I think it would be helpful if we stopped being so jealous of what others, God's doing through others. I think in some Christian spheres there are popularity contests going on. We should rejoice that there are more people pointing people to Jesus. You don't have, nobody has the exclusive domain of that. Now one example I love from the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 11 Verses 26 to 29, you've got these two guys, Eldad and Medad, who are prophesying 
just in the general camp amongst the people, not in the tent of meeting. And some people are a bit infuriated. They go, man, that's Moses' gig. And so even Joshua comes to Moses saying, Lord, stop them. Here's what Moses says. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on them. He's like, they, don't worry about me, man. I wish you all did this. How good would it be if everyone was actively involved in ministry? That's a good response. If our goal is to see people come to Jesus, to see God glorified, the more the merrier. John illustrates his point by taking an analogy from weddings in the first century, describing himself as like the friend of the bridegroom. I suppose in our modern terms, a best man, but with far more responsibilities than the modern best man. The best man, you turn up, oh, you might organise a bit of a, a weekend of doing stupid stuff to the groom sometime beforehand. Hopefully he recovers before the wedding. Then you might have to remember to make sure you hold on to a ring and you don't lose it so you can pass it over. Often the friend of the bridegroom would conduct the ceremony. But one thing they also did was that it was their job to guard the bridal chamber where the bride would be and he was to make sure that no one else would go in there. And when he heard that the bridegroom had come to the bride, he heard the voice, like, my job is done. These two have come together. They have been united. And John the Baptist says, that's what's happened. That is my joy and that is complete. I love his final words. He must increase, but I must decrease. He doesn't say it's, it's beneficial. He doesn't say it's kind of good. He says it is necessary, it is essential that he must increase and I must decrease. Now, in context, he's speaking about the transition between his public ministry and the, the ministry of Jesus, saying his job was to go before Jesus. Now Jesus is taking front and centre stage. He was a forerunner for Jesus. But it's a pretty fair statement to make in a broader sense. Everything that you and I should do to want to see more and more of Jesus and less and less of ourselves. It's the way we see things described it. We would called to become more like Christ. We're told to put on the new self, put off the old. Everything's about more of him, less of me. That's why there was the challenge in the beginning. Why is it we make resolutions, things that we want to see happen, yet the majority of them are more of me or more for me? We should be about more of Jesus. Pursuing more of Jesus ourselves, wanting to help others to pursue Jesus more who already do, our brothers and sisters in Christ around us, helping those who don't know Jesus to pursue him more, to know more and more of him. Because he alone sets us free. He alone is our life. Back in verse 13, Jesus made a statement which was very clear. He says, you know what? No one has come from heaven. And spoken about God except for me. So if you want to know something about God, there's one authoritative voice, and that's the one who has come down from heaven, who is Jesus Christ himself. 
That means for anyone else to come up with a conclusion about who God is, what he is like, they're just making it up. They've got no basis whatsoever in which they speak of. Just made up assumptions. That's why in verse 33 it says, whoever believes Jesus' testimony sets his seal on that God is true. Jesus came and he bears witness to what he has seen and heard from God himself. But to not believe Jesus' testimony, that says God's a liar. That's to say that somehow the one who has come from God, the only one who has come from God to say what God is like, has less idea what he's talking about than me who have never been there. This is more of an issue than just personal opinions. You know how people these days say, oh, that's great for you that you want to do this whole Jesus thing. Jesus not only tells the truth, he is the truth. And how he responds puts every single one of us in one of two camps. That was the final verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. He says, that's where everyone fits. Everyone who believes, and not just everyone who agrees with certain information about Jesus, but who believes, places their trust in, lives by, has eternal life. But notice on the flip side, he doesn't say, whoever does not believe. He says, whoever does not obey. Because there's lots of people who believe the right stuff about Jesus, but they've never trusted their life to him, they don't live by it. It says, whoever doesn't obey, whether they believe the right things about him or not, will not see life, not because God will, as a result, place his wrath upon them, but because God's wrath remains on them. It was already there. Just like what he said back in verse 18. We are by nature, under condemnation. Paul said the same thing to the, to the Ephesian church. We were, by nature, children of wrath. Because our natural state inherited through Adam and Eve is that we don't want God in our life. We want to call the shots. We want to live our own way. We want to completely shun the one who has given us life and breath and everything, the one who's our true ruler, the one who's a good, loving ruler. And we want to say, no thanks, I've got this covered. We resist him, we dishonour him. And that was the natural position of every single person ever born. Of mine, Stuart, I don't know why I'm picking Stuart, he's in the front row, lucky Stuart, you've got to mention. That's why we needed a saviour. Because we were, by nature, children of wrath. By not believing in God's provision of a saviour, we were already condemned. But it says this, whoever believes in him is not condemned. There's no conditional statements. It's no like, whoever believes in him, as long as they've lived a pretty good life up until that point in time, regardless of past, whoever places their trust in him is not condemned for any of it. The shed blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. 
but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he hasn't believed in the name of the only Son of God. Because they reject. God has held out the means of salvation. They're like, nah, don't need it. That's sad, isn't it? There are millions every year who hear about what God has done to rescue us, to save us. And they decide, not important. I don't need it. They decide their opinion of God is far more reliable than the testimony of the only one who's come from God. In one sense, it couldn't be simpler. Jesus has done the work. Believe that his death was the death you deserve. Trust in him. Live with him. No condemnation. Eternal life, you'll be saved. And every single person born into this world belongs into one of those two camps. I know we'd like to think there's a comfortable middle ground where we just kind of think he's a bit of a liar. We dishonour him a little bit. There is no middle ground. Now, a number of you will know that our, our cute little doggy Sindel passed away this week. I love that dog. And I was actually surprised how much that actually affected me. Now, if I was particularly sensitive, this, this comment wouldn't have been so funny, but I'm not. Miller said, Dad, it was funny when you cried. I've never seen you cry before. Now, five years, my daughter's never seen me cry. And what was it about? It was about a dog. You know, the good thing about when a dog dies, there is no, there is no afterlife. There is no, there is no consequences. They, they just come to an end. But guess what? In those same five years, I would have known lots of people who died who didn't know Jesus, who do have to give an account before God. And I think, how is it that I cry for this dog, yet unmoved by all these others I know who have died outside of Christ, who have to stand and give an account before him? Probably not a comfortable question to ask ourselves, is it? Because the answer is not really complimentary. The answer I came out with is, Clearly, my mind is set more on temporal things, on selfish things. And I wanted to apply that expression of John into that situation. God, in this year, take my eyes off myself. I must. It is necessary. I must decrease. My life's not about me. He must increase. In my life, I need more of him. And those of all of us here in the body of Christ need more of him. But so much more. Those who have never come to place their trust in him, they need more of him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love to give good gifts. We thank you that it grieves you when people die outside of a relationship of Christ, who have rejected the means of salvation that you have held out before us. 
Lord, it may have been uncomfortable for me and for lots of us to think about priorities, what really is our highest values, the highest pursuits. But Lord, I pray you would change our hearts because we know we can't do it just by trying harder. We can't do a single thing unless it is given to us by you. So Lord, change our hearts that we might desire more and more of you and it might actually be delight to see less and less of ourselves. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.